Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. The Guardian. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books podcast with me, Claire Armistead. This week's edition is devoted to the Booker Prize, which announced a long list full of surprises late last night. We'll be hearing later from one of its biggest names, former winner Michael Ondaatje. But with me in the studio now is Richard Lee to run us through the other authors in contention. So who's on the list, Richard? Uh, well, the biggest talking point is the first ever graphic novel to make book a long list, which is Nick Donasso's Sabrina. We, we actually picked this up quite early because we, we had it as a book of the week on The Guardian um, and interestingly, it, it was reviewed by Chris Ware. Now, Chris Ware, as people with long memories like myself might, <laughs> might recall, um, won the Guardian First Book Prize um, with Jimmy Corrigan's Smartest Kid on Earth m- many years ago, so like sort of 15, 16 years ago. And um, he reviewed it and he thought it was a masterpiece. Well, he sort of would because it's very much a tribute to him, <laughs> with, I, we think, in style. It's, it's, it's got his sort of deadpan, lovely deadpan style with sort of quite sombre drawing, quite sombre colour palette. But it did get a blurb to die for from Zadie Smith as well, who described it as the best book in any medium I've read about our current moment. So, so there you go. I mean, I think it is a book of this moment. And do you think it's actually the? Do you think it merits that status as the first graphic novel to make it into book of contention? I think if you ever look at a prize, you look at the judges, and you will immediately see that Leanne Shapton, who is a, a well-known illustrator and um, graphic novelist, is one of the judges. Now, this means two things. A, it means that she will have an eye to what is good in her sector, and that's great because fiction is so atomized these days that it is very difficult for any one judge to keep across all the different forms but b and this is the slightly more um this is me being slightly more machiavellian you know the the publishers will have spotted leanne shapton on the jury as well noted so that <laughs> they will have noted it so the likelihood is that there were a lot more graphic novels in you know submitted this year because they will have thought oh yeah they've there's probably going to be one of those on the list, which is sort of all good because it means that she will have had a good field to choose from and she will have an expert eye trained on that field. And you could say the same thing for Belinda Bauer-Snap because um, Val McDermott is on the on the jury and she will have been looking out for crime and thrillers. It's not unusual for crime and thrillers to be on this long list, um, but often it's they're slightly in for a dig. And I think that Val's in a very good position to make the case for Belinda, who, who actually I've been watching since since I'm boasting, since 2009 and her, her debut, Blacklands, which I was very impressed with. There are also quite a few exciting young women. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it's a list with seven women, so more women than men, which I, I'd say is probably unprecedented. Uh, I haven't actually done a full audit, which I probably should have done. But they didn't make a big f- fuss of that. Um, it just so happened that on the day that the list came out, I was reading Daisy Johnson's Everything Under. And I was actually 
actually um, quite late into work because I couldn't stop reading it. Um, and I was, you know, it's a really, it's actually, it's, it's billed as one of the debuts. It's a debut novel, but although she had published a collection of short stories, which was very well received. And it's a really strong, contempor- it's mythical, but contemporary at the same time. There's nothing modern in its references but it's it's about it takes in transgender, it takes in sort of rootlessness, it takes in all sorts of different sorts of relationships. But it is based on the Oedipus story. It doesn't wear that very heavily. And I think this is another really interesting trope that's going on at the moment. And we see it also in another of the debuts, interestingly, which is Sophie McIntosh's The Water Cure, which is about three sisters and a father, a toxic masculinity embodied in a father called King. So guess what? <laughs> that summons. I mean, you know, that's it's a clear nod to King Lear, and we we've already seen in Pretty Teenager, you know, Pretty Teenager used King Lear as a sort of a template for a novel. So there's something really interesting going on with these young novelists um, on the, their use of old tales. Another one of these exciting young writers is Sally Rooney, who suddenly arrived last year and took everybody by surprise, um, being described as no less than Salinger for the Snapchat generation. Uh, She's back again with normal people, and I think a lot of normal people will be watching her with great interest. There's also another debut on the list from Guy Gunaratne, who's um, who's published In Our Mad and Furious City, which is a kind of take on a hot summer in a North London estate. 48 hours in a North London estate with the killing of a soldier in the background, you know, it's again it's it's very contemporary it's um edgy and I, I i think that you can see in this list that they have tried to go for edgy novels as yeah, it's well. told very much in the voices of the of the five protagonists there's three young men and two slightly older people it's told very much in their kind of voices in their slang the yeah. guardian reviewer uh, claimed it was uh, said it was uh, almost as if it had a kind of grime soundtrack yeah. And there's another first novel as well, though not a first book, a first novel from Robin Robertson, which also sounds very interesting. He's combined verse and prose. Yeah, that's um, Robin Robertson, and it's uh, called The Long Take. Now, Robert Robertson has won all three forward prizes for first collection, single poem, and for main collection. So we're not counting him as one of these neophyte young women coming up, obviously. <laughs> but um, I think there's something, this is another thing that, that I have been looking out for is there's something interesting going on with the verse novel and he does his partly in verse and partly in prose the new brand new Irish laureate Sarah Crossan wrote a very very good verse novel called Moonrise for teens which was out last year but is just out in paperback which uses a verse novel to deal with capital punishment Um, so I think there's something interesting about the 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 way that um, people are taking this as a, a a way of writing urgently about urgent things and and topical things. You would normally consider a verse novel to be a bit wafty, wouldn't you? Well, one might, but <laughs> I, I think they're absolutely challenging that tradition and Not doing something cases. really interesting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's also a couple of big hitters on the list. There's uh, Richard Powers and Michael Ondaatje, who we mentioned already. Yeah, Michael, well, Michael Ondaatje has gone back to the Second World War. It's the Second World War and onwards. Um, he, he won the Golden Booker earlier this summer for um, the English patient so it has become the booker of booker books <laughs> <laughs> the latest and, booker of booker yeah, of yeah. booker of bookers books. yeah but you know but Michael the thing about Michael is he always has this this um, outsider perspective on what happened in the war and it, you know that's what makes his his writing last and gives it its resonance where you know it's it's it, he is very his his sensibility is very unique um, and I really look forward to this. This is actually coming on holiday with me. 
<laughs> Will you be taking Richard Powers as well? Well, no, I haven't got Richard Powers on my list, but obviously I might have to pack an extra one. <laughs> uh, uh, well, I'll certainly have to pack a, an extra one. Now, Richard Powers, The Overstory, this is my sort of book because it's about trees. And as you probably know, I love anything to do with trees. <laughs> Um, it's, uh, there was a, lo- a really nice line on it that a reviewer had, which was summoned by trees. I thought, well, that's my sort of book. It's a, his 11th novel. He's, he was on the book a long list, one of the people who's featured before with Orfeo in 2014. And um, it's about um, a family of Iowan farmers who brought chestnut seeds um, back in a long time ago. And, they, these, and the growth of the chestnut trees or the, the survival of a chestnut tree coincides with them downscaling their farm so it's sort of about in the environment and long history and I think that this is you know again this is a very topical issue you know as it happened I'll tell you my holiday secret from last year I traveled three hours across Sicily to go and see Europe's oldest chestnut tree so this is a story that means something to me this is I am very bonded with chestnut trees <laughs> there's also Donald Ryan who's also a Guardian first book award winner who takes the story of a Syrian refugee and a crooked accountant and an angry young man with a kind of broken heart and weaves them together in a very unexpected way. Yeah, he, he, in The Spinning Heart, he had 21 narrators. Here he has three, but two direct narrators and one is in the third person. Um, so, so he is a sort of, he's a wizard with voices, basically. And I think this is another, um, you know, I haven't actually read this one. I'm a huge fan of his work going back, back you know, back a long time his fourth novel I think he's really coming through and I always love seeing Guardian first book winners coming through it makes me feel very maternal and happy (laughs) it's also another very topical book well they're all topical aren't they I mean this is obviously the the, you know this is the shtick of this particular list Rachel Kushner's The Mars Rooms about um, mass incarceration in the US and then Anna Burns Milkman is um you know, dealing with the Northern Ireland conflict from the perspective of an 18-year-old. She, again, was she was on the um, shortlist for the Orange Prize um, in 2002. She's, she's interesting because this is only her third novel. She's in her 50s. Um, so she's a slow burn. And, again, I really like, you know, we, we, the, all the emphasis is about these 27-year-olds. And brilliant, there are 27-year-olds on this list, two 27-year-olds. But there is also somebody on her, in her 50s with her third novel who is just going the distance at her own, pay, at her, at her own pace. So um, I'm definitely looking out for um, Anna Burns' Milkman as well. And to round out the list, there's Essia Dugin's Washington Black. Yes, right. OK, so Essia Dugin. I really liked Half-Blood Blues in 2013, and I thought it could have, that could have won the Booker Prize then. Um, and that was about her... She's got this knack of, of telling... Um, of, of, she finds really good historical stories which seem incredibly resonant. And in that case, Half-Blood Blues, it was about um, a jazz man who got lost in Nazi Europe. So, you know, it's a sort of fantastic metaphor for, for European history, world history, music, you know, really, really seductive. And this one's a, a runaway slave narrative. She's Canadian. It's called Washington Black. It goes from um, Barbados through Morocco, London, ends up in the Canadian Arctic. But it's also to do with um, the um, 19th and 20th century beginnings, certain beginnings of technology. And I think that that's another thing in a lot of these novels, technology features in a lot of them and here you have you know you have ballooning you have the world's first aquarium so there's there's a lot of stuff that relates to a world in a sense of of in a state of um technological upheaval which is where we are now without being absolutely direct about it you said that half blood blues might well have carried the book prize when it was on the list um before 2013 that, that was i think yeah do you think the washington black might be um, might be the eventual winner 
Oh, it's just so difficult, isn't it? Yeah, I have a, I have a soft spot for Essie Adugian, I have to say, but um, that means I've blighted her. Sure, <laughs> I've blighted her chances now, Essie. I'm really sorry. <laughs> Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. You're listening to The Guardian Books Podcast. And now, let's turn to the only writer on the list to have won the prize before. He's Michael Ondaatje, and he met up with the novelist Carmilla Shamsi at a Guardian Live event recorded at the Greenwood Theatre in London. She began by asking him when he decided he wanted to be a writer. Well, I know that when I was 10 years old, I had no desire to be a writer. Okay. Or even at the age of 17, Mm -hmm. I had no thought of being a writer. Right. And when I went to university in Canada, I went to school in England, and then I went to university in Canada, and I had a wonderful... English teacher, it's one of those cliches that mm. this person changed my life. Yeah. And um, he was very theatrical. He did plays, and he also was a great English teacher. And he would end each class with a, a browning poem, and then the bell would ring, and he'd sweep out of the class, and everybody wanted to be mm-hmm. a poet from then on. Right. And a few of us who were smarter took over the literary magazine and published all our own poems in it. Right. <laughs> and that's how it began. Yeah. But uh, quite seriously, I, I had no desire to be a writer. I quite honestly didn't know what to do with my life, mm-hmm. you know. And um, well, I did begin to start writing. And even when I was writing poems, I never imagined I would have a book out. Mm-hmm. And then when I had a book out, I never thought I'd have a book of prose out. So it was a very gradual uh, entrance into the, the maze, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, so it was a very, as I said, I, I got involved with, sm- and with small presses in Toronto, so where your books came out, and six months later there was a two-line review saying quite good or okay. Right. I was lucky in a sense that I, mm-hmm. I was connected with a small press, mm-hmm. and I was lucky that I didn't have this kind of success. In fact, it took a long time. Mm-hmm. So um, I think I found my voice and didn't feel I had to go in a certain kind of style or language to be accepted. You know, this was Coach House Press in Toronto, and it was, mm-hmm. you know, book sold with like 500 copies. Mm. At what point did you set up Brick? Brick is a glorious magazine. Mm. It's, it's my favorite magazine in the world, um, which you were one of the founders of. No, you? actually, a couple of other people founded it. And then Linda Spaulding and I took over the magazine, and we ran for about 30 years, and then still carrying on with a, a different group of people mm. doing it. But it was originally, it was just an idea to try and uh, publish work that contained writing by Canadian writers as well as writers from elsewhere in the world mm. and kind of let them interbreed in some kind of way. Mm. All writers are readers first, right? Mm-hmm. So you didn't know, I mean, university is sort of when, in some way, I suppose, the writing of poems happened. But is there, do you then look back and say, oh, but the love of language or the love of literature started at some earlier point or was it really not there? No, I, I mean, it wasn't literature that mm. made me, uh, you know, 
the literature that I witnessed, mm-hmm. in a way, was the family dinner mm-hmm. in Sri Lanka, where, uh, and I've mentioned this before, but usually the family dinner was involved with tremendous arguments and mm. excuses for not being at so-and-so's wedding, mm. you know, and, and uh, it was just fascinating. And, and I was more of a listener than a reader, to be mm. honest, you know. I didn't really, I don't remember reading very much when I was, when I was around before 11, but I guess I must have done, mm. and, or being read to. It was mm. just this kind of dialogue around me, and so it's more of a witnessing mm-hmm. of life as opposed to right. w- reading a novel. Mm. How did the transition, I know it wasn't a straight transition, but because you were writing poetry and prose and poetry at the same time, mm-hmm. and, and it seems more recently it's been, been more novels, but right. how did prose happen? I began writing poetry, as I said, and I think... After a couple of books, I, I wrote a, a, long, a long sequence, a serial poem, and then around 1960-something, nine or eight, I began writing a, a, a book called The Collective Works of Billy the Kid, mm. and these were going to be lyrics by Billy the Kid. And, you know, I grew up in Sri Lanka, so naturally, Westerns, mm. for some strange reason, mm. became a kind of mythology for me. And I, wrote, I was writing this book for about two years, and then I decided I needed to have prose in it. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't seen any books that had poetry and prose so evidently, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I started writing sections where some gunfight takes place or some strange act takes place. So suddenly in the book I had poetry and prose and then I decided to have pictures in it, mm-hmm. a few pictures in it, and lots of white space. So suddenly the book I was writing turned from being a, a book of poems to a book of poems and prose and pictures and because it was not written chronologically, it was the making of a book. It was the, 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 the book as collage. Mm-hmm. So the book where you put this poem against this piece of prose, it didn't work as well as you put this poem against that piece of prose. You bring it over here, and the, the effect of the, the bounce between the two things mm-hmm. became evident. And I think it was a very, very important stage in my life as a writer to see the book as something that was made as well as written, mm-hmm. and that the form of the book and the structure of the book could be adapted from what you thought it was going to be to something else. Yeah. And I think all my books have gone through that stage of not quite collage anymore, but something mm-hmm. else. What has and hasn't changed in the process of, of writing for you? What hasn't changed? Mm-hmm. Um, well, certainly when I started to write prose, mm-hmm. I had to think about what kind of prose I would write. I mean, uh, and I, I guess I took all some of the baggage of poetry or some of the, the freedom of poetry into prose. Mm-hmm. And I found that difficult to persuade people about yeah. at first. But um, so in a, in a book like Coming, Coming Through Slaughter, which is actually a very short book, you know, it, it covered a large period mm-hmm. of time uh, in someone's life. And so it was very, very concentrated and very, very you know, shaved down to the bone as, mm. as a way a poem would be. You know, William Carlos Williams who says a poem is something written in the smallest number of words. And, and I think I was very aware of that in, when I was writing a novel, that it wasn't going to, be, wasn't going to say everything. It was mm-hmm. going to say 70%, so that the reader, in fact, as in a poem, provides the other 30% and mm-hmm. also puts things together. You're not led by Shepard. You're, you're connecting things. So... Mm-hmm that idea of a sort of a rhyme that happens in a poem, mm-hmm. not real rhyme, but rhyme, 
could happen in, in prose as well. And I think I was very conscious of that mm. when I wrote a book by coming through slaughter. Yeah. So I, the collage thing now was something else, a little mm -hmm. bit different. And I think when I did In the Skin of a Lion, mm. I was very interested um, as a, with a lot of the Mexican art of murals. Mm -hmm. And that was a big effect on me, I think. And so it was a different kind of rhyme. And there's a great um, mural of Diego Rivera's where uh, it's, it's set in Detroit and there's some guy holding a spanner on one corner of the painting. And the other corner of the right painting, there's the foreman holding a pen in exactly the same gesture. Mm -hmm. And so that, the effect of that kind of thing, visually, was important to me yeah. as a writer. And again, that kind of rhyme was always important to me in, in the rest of the books I've written, I mm -hmm. think. You know? And also that mixture of groups of people, I think. There are a lot of different art forms underpinning your work. I mean, you mentioned the Western jazz is an important one with um, coming through slaughter, right. uh, the murals. Yeah, I, I really think that um, <clears throat> as, as a writer, I'm probably more influenced not by writers so much as mm -hmm. the other arts, um, mm -hmm. the arts that I can't do. You know, I'd love to be able to play the piano, I'd love to be able to sing or whatever it is. And, mm -hmm. and I always am attracted by the idea of using some art form that is not writing mm -hmm. in an art form. Mm -hmm. You know, as I talked about the example of the mural, for instance. Yeah. And I'm not quite sure how else I can describe mm -hmm. other art forms, but I think musically I'm very conscious of the jazz, the jazz, a piece of jazz of three minutes long involving three or four souls and then everyone coming together at the end, mm -hmm. the way a novel can do that. Mm -hmm. you know? um, let's start talking about Warlight. So we've mm -hmm. done origin stories of you. What's the origin story of this one, of Warlight? You know, I, I've, I've, had to, I've had to lie about it because I can't yeah. really remember. Um, <laughs> <laughs> What's the best lie you have? Give us your best. Well, I mean, I, I think seriously that I was somehow... In, I, I had lived in England for about a number mm. of years, from about age of 11 to about 18, and I, I'd never really written about England. I'd written about Sri Lanka, about Canada, and mm. countries I didn't even live in. And I was just interested in somehow writing about not necessarily that time, mm. but this place. Mm. And I was also interested in that kind of pivotal stage where we moved from war to peace, so mm. 1945, London. Mm -hmm. And just that was a kind of possibility. I, I had nothing more than that, really. Yeah. And um, quite early on, I had that first sentence of the book, which uh, I'll have to read because I can't remember what it said. But it, it, um, hang on. In 1945, our parents went away and left us in the care of two men who may have been criminals. So that, that by itself created a problem. You know, right. who, who are these parents and who are the, mm -hmm. the, the criminals and who are the, who's speaking? And so that possibility of a story that began as something very scary or mm -hmm. ominous, and, but quite soon when I began to write about that, it became a story of writing about a kind of freedom. Mm -hmm. So suddenly the book, which I thought was going to move in this direction, was kind of swerving off into the, early on anyway, into mm -hmm. the whole idea of, of, of a freedom. And, and I remember being in Germany, I, was, I mentioned this before once, um, when 
I met this, this filmmaker who said he, he gave small cameras to his students, uh, young students of 11 or 12, and said, now you can make a movie. What's the first thing you're going to do? And they would say, first the parents leave. And so that, that gave them an immediate freedom to do whatever they wanted. They could become clowns or bank robbers or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And in a way, this is what happens in this book. You know, the parents go away, and rather than turning into a kind of horrifically sad book about abandonment, mm -hmm. which it also is, mm -hmm. it became a book about possibilities that of these two kids who are 14 and 16 who have never really entered the public world of London. Yeah. It's the same moment in history that you give us in The English Patient, which is the end of the Second World right, War. Right, right. Is there some, I mean, was there a point you thought, oh, this is the same moment? Is there something with this moment that particularly draws me? Yeah, strangely enough, I, I didn't read, yeah. you know, I should realize, but there is a connection with this book and The English mm. Patient, but I didn't feel like it was. Mm. The, the voice was very different. You know, there was a third-person voice mm. there. For, for, and this one was focused more on the voice of Nathaniel. Mm -hmm and someone who is very, very uncertain as opposed to the confidence of a third-person voice. So it, it felt very different. You know, mm. there was war, there was war in the title, but yeah. it was a war that was a distant war that was, you know, um, so the, what was happening in England in 1945 and beyond that for mm -hmm. the next 10 years was sort of lit by a war as opposed to being about the war. Mm -hmm. So I think that was what was interesting to me. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because, you know, war light... As you say, the war is there, but the war is over, except the war isn't quite over. And there's a line that's repeated a couple of times, Seville to wound, Cordoba to die in. Mm. Do you want to talk about what that line means within the context of the novel? That's, that's a Lorca, yeah. line from a Lorca mm. poem. And I mean, it may not be what he meant, but well, I, I, there's a man named Marsh Fellin in it who, who always is careful to separate where he fights and where he lives. Mm. And that doesn't happen for the character of Rose, in a mm. way. But it's for him, it's a separation of locations. Again, mm -hmm. the war happens over there. You know, the yeah. usual, the American wars usually happen over there, not in mm -hmm. America. So mm -hmm. that kind of yeah. thing. But there's also the idea that, that 1945 wasn't the end of the war. Right. Um, and so, well, I'm just going to tell people about the first 15 pages of this novel. Pardon? The I'm going to tell people about the first sure. 50. It's right. Because there's an incredible compression in those first 15 pages, and, and it was only on rereading it, so the second time that I realized, you know, these 15 pages, many writers have taken half a book to give it to you. Mm. Um, and partly, it may go back to what you're talking about in terms of being a poet and that mm -hmm. distillation, but in the first 15 pages, we find out that there's this, these siblings, 14 and 16-year-old, their parents had announced they're going off to Asia. The father goes first. Mother is going to go later and then unexpectedly leaves much sooner than she said she would. They're there with this man who they don't know that, ma yeah. know that well, who they call the moth, one of the The many, guardian, yeah. yeah. Who's the guardian. Um, they're supposed to be in boarding school, decide they don't want to be in boarding school, and the guardian says, okay, fine, you live with me in the house, and, and then this house is filled with the people who he knows who you know, are various forms of criminals and yeah. interesting characters. And that's just the first 15 pages. And the novel sort of goes from there. And then it slows down a bit. And then it slows down. I mean, it, the, the, the pacing of it is, is, is lovely because it's sort of, there's this compression and then we sort of meander with, particularly with Nathaniel, yeah. um, the boy who's, you know, really the center of the story um, and what it means in this 
in this world of freedom, and then it kind of speeds up again. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a kind of thriller or film noir that is mm-hmm. kind of the undercurrent of the story, but it's almost as though you've taken a story of film noir and turned it upside down and said, the bits that you usually see on the screen I won't show you, mm-hmm. and the bits you don't see are what yeah. I, will, I will show you, because mm-hmm. we, we really get the, the lives of Nathaniel and what it means to have this mother who's, who's gone off. Right. Um, and you do have, I mean, it's sort of quite interesting, the, the story beneath it of the war that didn't end. Right. Um, and I wondered at what point you became, because to me it was fascinating, the way in which certain operatives were, were continuing to carry out certain clandestine operations. What point was that a story that you became interested in or knew about? You mean the eventual revelation or what, what happens in the first half of the book? The, this, the story of what Rose was actually up to. Oh, well, I mean, that, that takes place in part two of the novel. Mm. I mean, essentially, it's, it's, the first part is a story from, by, in, that, in that voice of Nathaniel who's in that yeah. free, free state mm. uh, or, and, me, and sort of getting excited by working with this character called the daughter mm. and, um, and meeting... Uh, a young waitress called Agnes, so that he's discovering a new life in mm. a way. And the, so the mother's plot is left alone yeah. for quite a while until mm-hmm. about half, halfway through when she yeah. suddenly turns up yeah. at, a, at a crucial moment. Mm. And so then Act Two had no idea what, what was right. going to happen yet. Mm. You know, it was a, a sense of discovering the story and, and even discovering the pace mm. of it. I mean, the pace of it changed during the editing, I, I think. But, you know, right. it really was discovering of, of suddenly these kids are here, he meets the daughter, he's involved with some kind of crime of smuggling dogs. Mm-hmm. And, and so you go with that story. And there's a kind of wandering around. Yeah. And, and then something dark happens. And then, in part, two, you get a different version of what was going on during mm-hmm. that time. Because as you read it, there is this wonderful sense. It's actually in my edition, the UK edition, page 15 to 115, that it's kind of that meandering where he's mm-hmm. with the daughter and the moth and the dog smuggling and Agnes. Yeah. And, and, and then you get to the later point, you realize, well, this felt like a very wonderful kind of wandering. Mm-hmm. But you get to the latter part of the book and it's all, you realize it's so essential to what's going to come in terms of plot development. And I know you've spoken before about the way you, a sort of writer's way of following the brush in terms mm-hmm. of how you... Mm-hmm. Can you talk about following the brush as a, as a sort of process of writing, what that means? Um, it, it's a term I came across uh, in, in an essay by uh, Donald Ritchie, mm. uh, who's a wonderful American writer, who was, uh, in fact, a, a great writer about Japanese art, Japanese, mostly <laughs> Japanese film, Japanese writing as well. And he did write this essay called... Part of it, the title is Tractates, or something like that. And he does say, whereas in the West we do, there's, there's a, a very, we like to have a logical structure mm. of, uh, in, in, a, in a work of art, in a, in a film. In Japan, it is much more a case of following the brush. And, and one of the lines, lines he has is that the Japanese prize the qualities of indecision in the structure of a work, mm. which sounds like hell to the West. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, and I love that phrase, prizing the qualities of indecision, which mm. is exactly alien to you know, what we are all told. You know. mm. So I, I don't have a, a big plan of, for a novel when I write. I start writing it and, and I sort of discover the story as opposed to mm. knowing where I'm going. So that's, that creates a kind of tension and 
perhaps an excitement in the story that wouldn't be there otherwise. Mm -hmm. I would be quite bored writing what I already know. So uh, that's what happens in in these novels. Mm -hmm. And um, this happened a lot in the the prize deploys of indecision because, especially in part two, I just didn't know where exactly, what was going to get the emphasis. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are two stories that by then are happening. And I don't want to really talk about those, but you know, yeah. where does it end? You mm-hmm. know, so I think that was what interested me mm. during the writing of it, and that was the most difficult thing, I think, with work, working with someone like Robin or Louise Dennis in Canada. Mm. Uh, the the whole idea of how pure, how strict the structure is, or not, and in some ways, as a result, the book is a, has a much stricter structure than mm. some of my other books, I think, because too much is being revealed and discovered. I, yeah. I think. One of the pleasures of, of having read everything a writer has written is finding certain things that recur differently mm. every time. Mm. Um, and in your case, Michael, criminals. You have a thing for criminals. Yes, and, 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 and I said I would never do that again, and there yeah. it was in the first sentence. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I don't know where it is. I, I don't think it's so much the fact of, of criminals, but mm. creating a kind of sense of um, a swerving, mm-hmm. you know, that... If you have five people in a room and it's a, a, a normal modest plot, yeah. that's fine. But if you have five people and a criminal in the room, mm-hmm. you know, it, it could seem to be a modest plot, but something's going to happen that should not happen. Right. You know, yeah. it, it's a very cheap trick, I suppose. But, you know, I mean, um, it seems to work. You know, I have to say. <laughs> so far, it's worked. I don't know how long I can go on with this. Yeah. But, no, I mean, yeah. I know what it is. It, it's, it's allowing an accident to happen. It's mm-hmm. allowing something, as I said, a swerve from... Mm-hmm. The, the, the movement of the story. Yeah. That was an extract from a Guardian live event in London with Michael Ondaatje speaking with Carmilla Shamsi. Warlight is published by Jonathan Cape in the UK and Knopf in the US. You can find out more about our Guardian live events at theguardian.com slash membership. Next week, we'll be striding out into the English countryside with refugee tales and heading off for Beirut with Maika Tsievogel and her novel in many voices, Shatilla Stories. Meanwhile, you can subscribe and review us on all your favourite podcatchers and join the discussion on Twitter by leaving a comment on the podcast page or by emailing us on bookspodcast at theguardian.com. But for now, from me, Claire Armistead, me, Richard Lee, and our producer, Simon Barnard, goodbye and thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.